Wow, is that what an extra hour of sleep buys you? It's like so much energy in here. I love it, which means that you guys are ready to dive in, right? All right, awesome. Well, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, uh, my name is Steve, and uh, I get to come here and teach every once in a while whenever Dale wants me to anytime. So it's been a lot of fun. And uh, one of the things that I love about this church is really sort of the family feel that we have here. And so for me, it, this is our church home and love seeing the connections here. It's amazing to kind of see where God's kind of moving and how God's continuing to rebuild and renew this church. And so it's been really fun just to be a part of it. Uh, if you guys know my story at all, you know that my family immigrated here from Vietnam in 1976. And so I grew up Buddhist. And at the center of our house was this altar. And I was taught growing up that I was supposed to go up to this altar every single night. And I was going to light incense. And I was supposed to leave an offering, usually of some kind of fruit or whatever, a little bit of tea. And I was taught this idea that if my offering was acceptable, then the prayers I prayed for would be answered. Now what this ended up doing was actually ended up shaping my entire image of God. It shaped my relationship with God and the purpose of my communication with God and instilled in me that if I do the right thing and I say the right thing, then I'm going to get what I want from God. And what that began to shape in me is that if I really want something from God, then I need to say the right things, I need to do the right things, and it ends up looking a lot more like a transaction. And so really my attitude when it came to prayer was, God, I'm going to scratch your back, and then you're going to turn around and you're going to scratch my back. That's the way this works. You see, we've been in this series looking at how we change. And over the past few weeks, we've been looking at how we as people are transformed by God. And what we've discovered is that the change that we want in our life can't happen through sheer willpower. Because will is an exhaustible resource. And we've been using this diagram called the triangle of transformation as a guide. That the transformation we desire to see in our life involves a truth that is built on God's word, not on our preferences. It involves community and our community speaking truth into us. And most importantly, for the past couple of weeks, looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so this morning, we're going to be actually diving into the final corner of the triangle, which is the, of the triangle of transformation. And that is that we are transformed by our practices. Now, I have to note here that our practices do not save us but they do turn, tune our hearts to be able to experience God more clearly. And so monastics in the 500s began establishing this rule or this trellis, which were a set of practices and guiding principles that were intended to maximize God's work in our life. Last week, Dale talked about the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, can fruit grow passively and out in the wild? Absolutely. My unkempt garden will tell you that things will grow out there in the wild. I don't remember when I planted zucchini, but it just keeps coming back. But one of the things we do know is that if we cultivate it, if we're intentional, then that can actually maximize the fruit that's growing in the garden. If you guys have ever seen wild blackberries and compared that to the blackberries that are grown on a trellis or that they've been cultivated, you see that they're larger, they're sweeter. And that's the difference of how the Holy Spirit works in our life when we are intentional. You see, these practices maximize our ability to experience God's work in us. And one of the practical ways that we do this as followers of Jesus is to actually put into practice the things that Jesus did. And so today we're going to look at the key to all, of good, all, of, all good relationships, and it includes our relationship with God, is that all good relationships begin with communication. And when it's directed towards God, we call it prayer. 
And so Tim Keller says it this way. He says, prayer is our personal communicative response to the knowledge of God. And so for us as Christians, prayer is about something more than just mumbling some things before we turn the lottery ticket into the person, right? You see, for the Christian, prayer is about knowing God, not just knowing about God. And so in prayer, we have to deal with God as he opens himself to us. And in prayer, we are being dealt with by him. And so praying is like friends who open up their hearts to one another and they're changed in the relationship. And so for Christians, what we have to know is that how we pray and why we pray is actually a reflection of our relationship with God. I don't know if you guys have ever had that moment where you're overhearing somebody else having a conversation on the phone. You can kind of tell from the content and from their tone who they're talking to. That you can talk, you can actually get some kind of sense of what that relationship is like. Maybe they're talking to a spouse or a significant other, or they're talking to a parent, or they're talking to the credit card company, right? It really tells us how that communication is happening, what that relationship is actually like. And I believe that in a very similar way, how we pray and what we pray reveals our view and our relationship with God. I like to think oftentimes of one of the greatest films of all time, Ricky Bobby, uh, Talladega Nights. And I love that Ricky Bobby in this loves to pray to baby Jesus because that is the Jesus he prefers to pray to. And when he prays, he prays to get the wins and get the money, right? And I wonder if we're honest, for most of us, if the reason why we pray and how we pray and what we pray actually looks more like a Christmas wish list than a conversation with the God of the universe. And we end up buying into these various myths that we have about prayer. And then we are surprised and we abandon it because prayer doesn't quote unquote work. And so here's a couple of the myths that we have. The first one is that prayer is reserved just for the pious. That prayer is actually only for those AP Christians, right? Sorry, I work at Valley Christian, so you know, I'm around high schoolers all the time. That somehow God listens to my prayers as a pastor more than your prayer. And that's just not true. I had a neighbor who came up to me one time and he was like, you are a praying man. The next time that you pray, could you just like toss one up there to the man upstairs for me? Right? And I like turned back to him like, hey, you know that God listens to your prayer as much as he listens to my prayer. And he's like, I'm not religious. Right? I was like, this is really funny that you're asking me to pray then. But it's so amazing because the truth is when I turn back to him and say, you know what, God listens to your prayer as much as he listens to my prayer. It tells us something about God's desire to be in relationship with all of us. You see, prayer is not reserved for the elite or the uber religious. It really is for everyone. The second myth that we have when it comes to prayer is that prayer is about convincing God to change his mind in our favor. You see, if you're like me, one of the questions that I struggle with is really that question, does prayer work? And when I think about how I grew up, it was really about, can I say enough? Can I do enough? Can I do anything to change God's mind? And it ends up being kind of like this bargaining with heaven. I don't know if you guys have ever had this experience where you're like, God, if you would just do X, Y, Z, I'll never ask for anything ever again. Have you guys ever been there? Like I've been there, right? We all know what it's like. We're at common ground here. But the truth is that prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer actually changes us. And so the third myth that we see in prayer is this, is that prayer is a last resort rather than a first action. That the time to pray is when you see the oxygen mask drop from the ceiling, right? And we kind of hear this in a little bit of our language that 
when it comes to our, our lives, that after everything has been done in our human power and there's nothing else that we can do, what we say often is the only thing left to do is to pray. I usually hear this when people are really sick. We've tried everything else, and so all we can do is prayer, is pray. And that means that prayer is just reserved for those desperate moments. But one of the things that I experienced throughout the New Testament, what we read in the New Testament, is that God's people would pray first. They prayed often and they prayed for everything. And so now today we're going to unpack a little bit more about what we pray and how we pray. And we can actually do an entire series on that, but we can't today. So what I'm going to do today is just kind of frame up our conversation by looking at how Jesus prayed. Because when we look at the way that Jesus prayed, what we're going to see is that prayer was access, prayer was an alignment, and prayer is an authority. All right, you guys ready to dive in? All right, let's jump in. If you guys have your Bibles, you guys can turn with me to Luke chapter 11. If you have an analog Bible like myself, halfway through, you are going to be in probably somewhere in the Psalms. You're going to flip right past all the hard-to-read Hebrew names, and then to the names that sound familiar to you, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. And we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not into temptation. Now this is probably one of the most well-known and famous passages that we have in Scripture. It's a prayer that is actually central to the followers of Jesus. But one of the things that I notice is that anything that happens over and over and over again without much reflection becomes kind of rote religiosity. And we lose sight of how incredible this prayer actually is. And one of the things I love about this prayer is that the first Christians started using this as a prayer from the very beginning. And so if you go to some archaeological sites in the Middle East, you might find that on some of the buildings, they would etch in the words of the Lord's Prayer in the walls from the first century. Tertullian, a church father from the second century, said that the Lord's Prayer is the epitome of the gospel. That the entire good news of the gospel is contained in those opening words, Our Father. And so the disciples weren't struck by the fact that Jesus prayed, but what they were struck by was actually how Jesus prayed. You see, in the first century, every Jewish person prayed. They would either recite the Shema two times a day, which comes from Deuteronomy 6, chapter 4, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And then around Jesus' time, there was this prayer that they prayed three times a day, and it was called the Amidah. And it's built around 18 or 19 blessings to praise God, to petition for mercy, to make requests for yourself and for others. And if you were a follower of a rabbi in the first century and you were a disciple of somebody who was a rabbi, one of the things that you wanted to do was actually mimic the prayer of your teachers. And so there would be some arguments that would break out sometimes between different disciples of different rabbis. And they would say around uh, really the, the words that were said or the frequency of the prayer. Not that this happens today, right? We don't argue about prayer at all. But this is the reason why in verse 1 the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, teach us to pray just like John's taught his disciples to pray. And one of the things I love is that Jesus doesn't say, pray more. Jesus doesn't say, pray harder. Jesus doesn't say, pray differently. 
But Jesus says when you pray, you can pray as if you actually have a close relationship with God. And so our first observation about praying like Jesus is this. Prayer is access. Prayer is access. When Jesus instructed the disciples to pray, he said, pray as if you have access to God as a child has access to a father. Now briefly, I know that anytime we mention this idea of a father, we kind of have our own mental flashbacks of maybe our own imperfect fathers. And my encouragement to you is this, is do not let an imperfect image of your earthly father and project that onto a perfect God, but allow God to reshape and maybe even redeem your past hurts and your hardships with your earthly fathers. Now, one of the things that's amazing about what Jesus is doing here when he addresses God as Father is this, is that he's actually hyperlinking back to the words of the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Malachi, who painted this image of God as a Father during a time when Israel was in exile, at a time when because of sin they were scattered, they were lost, they were broken, and they felt abandoned. And so these prophets gave hope to God's people by speaking of God as a faithful father to the lost, that God is faithful even when we are not. And so we see in Isaiah 64, when Isaiah says, we have been given over to sin, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. And so when Jesus gives this invitation to pray our father, he's actually speaking direct words of hope to anyone who has ever felt unheard, lost, let down, dejected, or abandoned. That by saying our father, we are reminded that God is faithful. He goes on to say, our father, hallowed or holy is your name. Now to Jews, God's name Yahweh was so sacred that every single time they read it aloud in scripture, they would never actually say the words themselves, but instead they would substitute it with the word Adonai, which means Lord. Which is one of the reasons why when you read through your scriptures, you might run across the word Lord and it's kind of like in all caps. Well, that is a signifier to us that that's actually God's name in Hebrew. In fact, God's name in Hebrew was so holy that some would prefer to call him Hashem, which just means the name. Ancient scribes who copied down manuscripts of the scriptures, every single time they wrote the Lord's name down, they would go outside, they would bathe themselves, and they would come back and continue copying because the name was so sacred. But here Jesus is giving permission to call God our Father, holy be your name. That Jesus is actually giving us permission to approach a holy, all-powerful, infinite, and eternal God with the same confidence and intimacy that Jesus enjoyed. And what I love is that no one prayed with that kind of intimacy except for Jesus. This would be a little bit like having a dad, but your dad was also the president of the United States. That there's like this red phone that exists in your house and you pick up the phone and every time you pick up the phone, he doesn't say, hey, it's Mr. President, but he would say like, hey, it's dad. That this would be a little bit about what this is like. And I imagine for the disciples to hear Jesus say, hey, when you pray, call God Father, that this might have been something that's a little bit awkward and maybe a little bit something that's overwhelming for the disciples. And the reason why I know is because I dated Kate for six years, okay, my wife Kate. And for six years, when I met her parents, I never called them by their first name. It was always Mr. and Mrs. Cooper, okay? And even when we, I asked permission to marry Kate, one of the things that Kate's dad did is he finally sat me down. He's like, Steve, I think you've been here long enough. Uh, you know you have permission to call me Dave or you can call me dad. 
And so I said, absolutely, Mr. Cooper, right? I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I respected him too much. It was too personal. And so here in this passage, it's like Jesus gave permission to the disciples to address God as dad. But what this actually reveals is that this actually reveals God's desire. What God desires most from us in prayer is actually relationship. That when we pray, it should grow in us a desire to experience him more. Last week, I had the opportunity to go and, and teach in the high school group. And one of the things that we talked about is that if I could sum up the entire good news of the Bible in one simple idea, it would be this. That God desires a relationship with you. And through Jesus, it's possible. St. Augustine says this. He said that whether we realize it or not, prayer is the encounter of God's thirst with ours. And God thirsts that we might thirst for him. You see, this idea of God as Father shaped the early church and the first followers of Jesus so much that this became distinctive for the ways that Christians prayed. That Christians prayed. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.15, The spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship and daughtership, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. In 1 John 3.1, it says this, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The fact that Christians can pray to God as Father became something that was distinctive for the Christian community. And so the second observation that we see about praying like Jesus is this, is that prayer is alignment. It's an alignment of our will and our desire with God's will and God's desire but it's also a realignment of our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And so Jesus says, your kingdom come. Matthew would write in his gospel, and your will be done. And the reason why this is important for us is because sometimes when we pray, we pray as if we are hoping to change God's mind on a particular topic. But the reality is that when we pray, we're actually aligning our will with God's will. We're inviting God to realign our will with his will. Which means this, that sometimes when we are realigning our will, that sometimes God's answer will be no. And when God says no, it's not that he's trying to be cruel or that he's holding back on us or that he's being malicious, but that his no is out of love and we have to trust what that no is. My daughter, my oldest, just turned 11. And what she is asking for me for is a cell phone. Okay, and so I've, I've talked to her about this. I was like, oh, do you mean like, like a, a flip phone? You know, like a Nokia phone? You can play Snake, it's pretty sweet. She's like, no, Dad, a real phone, okay? And I'm like, well, those things are a real phone. But we tell her no, but our no is really actually not right now because we know of the impact that smartphones make on developing minds. But in the meantime, I encourage her, learn how to pass notes fold them up into teeny little triangles and flick them across the room without your teacher noticing, okay? That is a life skill. You need to learn how to do that, right? Our no to my daughter does not mean never. It just means not yet. Because one of the things that we know as parents is that we want her to mature a little bit, a little bit more before we give her access to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> See, I can't presume to tell you why God says no sometimes. Sometimes they are for good reasons that we don't find out later on when we look back and we're like, oh, I get why God says no. 
Sometimes we won't understand why God says no on this side of eternity. That, that might be something that God reveals to us later. But what I do know is this, is that whether God's response is a yes, a no, or slow, we can trust that God is good. In fact, one of the things that we see hope in is that even Jesus got a no from the Father. If you remember, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to go to the cross and ultimately he submitted his ask, but he realigned himself with the will of his Father. And he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And I think that one of the things that's important here is this, is that this doesn't mean do not ask. A little bit later, Jesus is going to say in verse 9 and 10, ask, seek, and knock. You see, God wants to give us what we ask for, for, but ultimately, God wants us to trust him to provide what we need. And so what he tells us in verse 3 is this. As we pray, we say, God, give us this day our daily bread. And this is sort of an allusion back to the story of Exodus. If you guys know the story of Exodus, God's people are wandering around the desert. And God ends up providing manna every single day for his people. And it was just enough for that day. And the moment that God's people tried to hoard all of that, it ends up rotting. And so it tells us two different things. The first thing that it tells us is that first, we can trust in God's provision to give us what we need. But the second thing that it tells us is that in those times when God gives us in abundance, when he gives us more than we need, it allows us to be generous to meet others' needs. You see, when we pray this part of this prayer, we recognize that everything we have is a gift. And like every gift, our gift is meant to be stewarded. It's one of the reasons why we say the generosity creed before we give, because it allows us to be thankful for our circumstances and also to be thankful for God's provision. And so Jesus' prayer not only aligns our will with God's will, it also aligns our soul with God's desire to be connected to it. And so in verse 4, it says this, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever had a bone out of alignment, or maybe you've had your back kind of out of alignment, but one of the things you realize is that everything hurts. Dale coaches football. I coach lacrosse at my school. And when I played with the kids this year, for some reason, I got hit by two balls. Both of them dislocated two fingers. And so my doctor said, Steve, I think it's time you can't play with the kids anymore, okay? I was like, how dare you? But one of the things is like, even to this day, like knowing that those bones were out of place, that they still hurt. And so this is exactly what sin does to us. That sin affects not just ourselves, but our relationships with the people who are around us. It affects our families, our communities, and our world. And so praying like Jesus is not just in alignment of our hearts with God, but also with our neighbors. One of the things I love, I don't often read the New King James Version, but I love the New King James Version of this passage because it uses the word trespasses. And I love the word trespass because here it conveys that sometimes when we sin, we break, or every time we sin, not sometimes, every time we sin, we break the boundaries with God, but also we break boundaries with one another. And so for Jesus in this prayer, He's making the statement that forgiven people forgive people. And when we don't forgive people, it actually hinders our ability to experience and appreciate fully God's goodness, his mercy, and his grace. And more often than not, as we are so acutely aware, unforgiveness usually leads to a cycle of violence. But the good news is this, is that repentance is the good news that we can have a U-turn it's the gift of being able to realign ourselves with God. And this is truth that everyone is someone who Jesus died for. And when you remember that, it makes it a little bit easier to forgive. And so finally, our last observation about praying like Jesus is this, is that prayer is authority. 
Now I want to talk for a second about what happens at the end of a prayer. Because usually if you are, have been in, ever in, been in a prayer circle, you know that there's this unspoken rule. That when you get to the prayer, end of the prayer, you say, in Jesus' name, amen, light hand squeeze, now let's go eat. Okay? Let go of my hand and let's go eat. Right? Like that's usually what this is. Like the prayer is now over. But the reality is to pray in Jesus' name is actually powerful. You see, in the book of Acts, the name of Jesus literally drove out demons and healed people. It wasn't just to signify the end of a prayer. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are inviting God's rule and God's reign to be present in our lives and in the lives of the people who are around us. And in God's kingdom, Jesus is king. And what we see in Matthew 28, what we see in the book of Acts, what we see in Revelation 22 is this, is that Jesus has been given all authority, that God has set all things under his feet. But rather than keeping that authority to himself, Jesus gives that same authority to each and every single one of us. I love that in the New King James Version, when you look at Matthew's gospel and the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, it ends with this line, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Did anyone remember like praying that part, right? Like back in the day, right? Okay, right? So to pray in Jesus' name isn't just this magical incantation that we're like, okay, it's time to go eat. Let's move on with our life. But the reality is when we pray in Jesus' name, we are actually claiming the reign and the authority of God's kingdom. I like to actually explain it this way. Um, if you've ever seen those movies, it's like a police movie, and they're like doing this chase down some alleyway, and finally they're like, hey, you, stop in the name of the law. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Maybe I'm the only one that watches those kinds of movies. That person stops not because there's some magical thing that happens with those words, right? But what happens in these moments is that this officer is invoking a law and an authority that is beyond themselves. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, we are actually invoking and claiming Jesus' authority over the earth. And the reason why this is significant is because this authority takes place in the spiritual realm. See, one of the things that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 is this, is that our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces. And the truth is that we cannot win spiritual battles with earthly weapons. And so what we see is that prayer is connection, it's communion with God, but it's also spiritual contention. Which means this, that when we pray in Jesus' name over our meals, over our families, over our neighborhoods, over our sports fields, we can actually pray with confidence because we are speaking and praying with an authority that comes from Jesus. So how do we begin to put all of this access and alignment and authority into practice? The first thing that we can do is we can pray first. In fact, if there is one simple principle that I believe can change and transform the way that you pray, it would be to pray first in everything. Imagine the difference it would make in your life if you shifted your mindset to a pray first mindset or pray first attitude. That we're going to choose to pray before we panic that we choose to pray before writing that email, to pray before picking up that phone, to pray before entering that house, to pray before you click buy now. <laughs> that would change a lot for me. To pray before you pick up that phone in the, early in the morning. You see, in my own life, it began to change my attitudes. I shifted to this mindset that before anything I do, I just wanna pray first. It doesn't have to be long, but just to take a moment and just invite God into that space. 
The second thing that we can do is we can cultivate our relationship with God by talking with God and not just at God, which allows us to take inventory. Because when we pray, who's doing most of the talking? I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone, but you actually never said a word to them, right? (laughs) This is a helpful practice. If you guys are journalers, you can journal, just wait and pause and allow God to speak. You can use scripture as part of your prayer life. The Psalms are a little bit like reading some of David's prayer journals. They're raw, they're honest, but they also remind me that those feelings that I have, that I'm not alone. And I think it's helpful for us to incorporate the utilization of scripture when we pray because as God reveals himself, one of the ways that God reveals himself in a reliable way is actually through his word. And I can't tell you how many times I've prayed about something and then I started reading through a passage of scripture and all of a sudden that passage of scripture ended up speaking directly to my situation. Have you guys ever experienced that? You see, when we pray alongside scripture, the Holy Spirit illuminates it in a way that speaks directly to us as well. The third thing that we can do is we can actually borrow prayer. One of the things that's so hard about prayer is that often people are like, I don't know how to pray or I don't have the words for prayer. One of the cool things is that we can actually look throughout history and actually borrow other people's prayers until we start to develop our own prayer language. One of the things I love about reading ancient prayers is it roots me not only in history, but in a robust theology. And so this is the reason why we have these cards um, on your chair. That there is just a couple prayers that we have on the back of this, just to be as a guide for you to just borrow some prayer if you're just learning or getting into this process of prayer, and I'm encouraging you just to start there. I also want to encourage you to start small. That you have to remember that the time in which you pray is less important than the fact that you do pray. St. Benedict said this. He said, we must know that God regards our purity of heart and our tears of compunction, not our many words. And if you're a parent, I just want to encourage you that one of the most powerful things that you can do as a parent is to actually model praying in front of your kids, learning to talk to God together as a family. If you're single, I want to encourage you to pray with a friend, ask a coworker or a teammate to pray with you. And if you're engaged, start practicing praying together because you begin to set up, establish rhythms for yourself because prayer, prayer is actually communal in nature. And so today I think we have an opportunity to respond. We're going to respond in communion. And for some of us, I want to think about What does prayer look like as a next step for you? Maybe for some of you today, prayer has been mostly private. It's just between you and God. And maybe today you're going to take that courageous step to ask to be prayed over, to share your request with somebody else. Or maybe that you're sitting with somebody right now just around you and you just want to take a moment and just pray for one another. But I believe that we as a community, as we continue seeking to be a community that's being renewed, continuing to rebuild, that prayer has to be an essential part of our church life.